You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. I can tell you that it's always an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to to stand up here and to teach God's word from this position in front of the family here at First. But today is a very emotional day, having the honor to stand up here and, and bring the message on the day that my son is being recognized as graduating. It's a, a, an extra special privilege to have this opportunity. I want to start this way this morning. Normally I would, in fact, my intention was to ask for your permission to meddle in your lives a little bit today, but I'm not going to ask for your permission. I'm going to meddle in your lives. And I'm going to ask three things instead from you. First, I'm going to ask you humor and indulge me as I do this. Second, I'm going to ask that you give me a measure of grace as I do this. And third, because, well, it's just the nature of things, some of the words that I'm going to use here in a moment might be uncomfortable for some of you to hear. And my intention is not to make you uncomfortable or to upset you, But if that happens, I'm going to ask you in advance to forgive me because that's not my intention. But I think the words need to be said and I think we need to ponder through them in light of my message. As I say these words, I'm going to ask you to participate. This is an activity in which I want you to join in. I am not going to call on anybody to provide further explanation, but I'm going to say some words. And as I say these words, if if a name comes to your mind, I want you to raise your hand. It can be you, it can be a family member, it can be a friend, it can be just somebody you're acquainted with. But if a name comes to mind, I just want you to raise your hand that 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 name helps you identify this person. The first word is music. Sports, either enjoys watching them or playing them. How about reading or books? How about history, fitness and exercise, diet and health? I'm noticing that a lot of these hands could probably just stay up, right? How about food? Any foodies in the room? Not me. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm definitely a foodie. Okay, so now I'm going to get into some of those things that I might need your forgiveness for. Politics. People pleasers. Can't say no to anyone. Career driven. I'm noticing a lot of these hands are still the same ones that could stay up the whole time. How about people who, no matter how good things are, are always negative? Now, this next one is kind of interesting. It's a double-edged. There's a positive, and then there's a negative side. And it can be either one. But money-focused, it could be people who are really good with money. They seem to have their finances in order. They seem to live on a budget. They know how to handle their money. They're able to to live within their means and save for retirement and for education and whatever, right? The people who do well with money. And then on the flip side of that are those who are the money-hungry, greedy, money-driven people. It can be either of those. But any money people you know? 
Okay, so I'm going to switch to a different set of, of words now. Same, same rules. Service. Compassion. Forgiving. Welcoming. Prayerful. Devout students of the word. Faithful. No matter how bad things get, always positive. It just doesn't make sense, right? Generous in giving of time, of talent, of resources. And now for the Sunday school. Christ-like. I want to ask you a question, and this is going to be really personal. This is going to be meddling. I'm not wanting you to answer it to me, but I want you to think about it. Keep it in the back of your mind as we go through the message. And it may seem like it's out of place, but I promise it will make sense. If you were to ask somebody to describe you in one or two words, what words do you think people would use to describe you? Think about that. If you were to ask people who know you to define you or to describe you, not in complete sentences or paragraphs or in minute detail, but in one or two direct words, what words do you think people would use to describe you? We're going to come back to that. I want to ask you for a moment to stand again. When Brady came to first, he started a practice. I'm not going to call it a tradition, but he started a practice, and I love the practice inviting us to stand for the reading of God's Word. And there's a reason that I love this, because I think it's wonderful that we sit to hear the words of men, but I think it's powerful that we stand to put appropriate emphasis on the very words of God. I'm going to read this morning from Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, Give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles or the nations say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. The word of the Lord from Psalm 115. You may be seated. There's a quote on the screen from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the quote says, I love this quote. It's, it's really fitting in life and it's especially fitting for my message. It behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Personally, I love expressions which display wisdom, and especially when they're expressions regarding God and His Word. 
There's another one that I really like. The Bible. In the old, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. And another one very similar. In the old, the new is contained. And in the new, the old is explained. How many of you are familiar with the term EULA, E-U-L-A? For those of you who don't know, a EULA is the end-user license agreement that you have to agree to before you can use any software that you purchase or download. Now, that document is, often feels like it's like 780 million pages long, filled with incredibly technical jargon that makes absolutely no sense, and we all, almost all of us do the exact same thing when it comes to that. Scroll, 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 scroll. I accept. I have no idea what I agreed to, but I'm using the software. Sadly, I think in the Western church, many Christians treat the Bible much like we do a EULA. We have this incredible end-user agreement that describes how we as the beloved, the purchased of God, are to live our lives in worship. But a lot of us, not all the time, but often, are guilty of saying, salvation, sign me up, I'm in. And we totally overlook the part where God says, I'll give you that, you can't earn it. But I have expectations in this relationship. I want you to be an active participant in our relationship. Continue to indulge me. I believe that as humans, you and I are made for worship. Humanity at its core was created by the divine creator for the unique purpose of worship. Now, in his design, we were created to worship him. But being the God that he is, and loving us and wanting us to have individuality and freedom, he gave us the power to choose if we will choose to worship him or if we will choose to worship something else. How many of you are familiar with the book of Job? We could say that the, Job, the book of Job is about many different things, suffering, Faithfulness, you could name an enormous list of what the book of Job is about. But I want to suggest to you that the book of Job, from end to end, is about worship. Worship? Are you crazy? Maybe. But bear with me, indulge me. I believe that in the book of Job, God is making the opportunity, he's putting his, his reputation on the line. When he says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Go test him. God is saying that Job loves me enough. He gets it. That no matter what you do to him, how you hurt him, what you take from him, he will continue to worship me. It may be uncomfortable for us to think about it, God also is willing to let Job suffer. That's kind of difficult to wrestle with, right? He's willing to let Job suffer 
for the sake of Job's worship. If we are in any doubt of the cosmic importance of worship, this should underscore how important it is to God. But if there's any doubt, there's something else. Remember the third temptation of Jesus? Satan takes him up into this high place and shows him the nations of the world. And he says to him, bow down and worship me, and I will give you my dominion over all of this. The story of life from beginning to end, from creation to the final culmination when Jesus comes back to claim the world as his own, is a story of worship. Who or what will we worship? Worship matters to God. It may sound egotistical of God to say that he desires our worship, and, and indeed for anything other than God, it would be. But since God is the most powerful thing in the universe, the most powerful being, anything less fails to acknowledge the reality of who he is. And needless to say, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that worship profoundly matters to God. In Deuteronomy 6, it says that God is jealous when it comes to his people worshiping anything other than him. And it is precisely the breaking of this relationship or worship which lead the people into the Babylonian captivity. And it is a worship session that breaks out when the heavenly host appears to some shepherds in Bethlehem to announce the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ to dwell among the creation. Think about the Ten Commandments, how they're structured. We could easily say they're a list of do's and don'ts, but if you step back and broad brush stroke look at them, the Ten Commandments are about worship. Love God. Things about idolatry. The, the magnification of God's name and how he feels about his name. And the last one, don't forget to observe and honor what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day dedicated to worship. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think God sends Moses, does all of these plagues, brings them through the Red Sea, takes them to Sinai, how on earth could this people forget to praise and worship God? Not possible, right? Have you read the book? God knew them, and he knows us. So all throughout Scripture, God reminds his people the importance of worship. To God, it is so important that they needed an ongoing reminder of it. Why? Because, as I said earlier, they have the ability to choose who or what they will worship, just like we do. They have free will. And if it's not God that we worship, we will worship something. We will fill that void because we are created for worship. How many of you are familiar with Joshua chapter 24? Joshua assembles the people of Israel and he challenges them. In fact, let me read this. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord, Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes or wrong in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve. 
whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the God of the Amorites, the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. It's not a matter of if you and I will worship. It's a matter of what or who we will worship. Worship changes us. Psalm 115, the last uh, verses 4 through 8 of what we read earlier, illustrate the point. The psalm describes the complete insufficiency of the idols. And significantly, verse 8 notes that, that the idol makers and those who put their trust in the idols become just like the gods that they worship. Conversely, it would make sense to me or seem reasonable to me that if we become like the things that aren't God that we put focus on in our lives, then if we put God at the dead center focus of our lives, we will become more like God. That's who we're designed to be like. Remember Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image. We were created to be like God. Not God, but to be like Him, to emulate Him, to live out the way that He would do things. When we worship, we reflect that which we're worshiping. And if we're reflecting Jesus, if that's what we're worshiping is God, Jesus, then we are going to reflect Him. We will become people who are defined by unrivaled love, unceasing burden-bearing, unreserved surrender, according to author J. Oswald Sanders in his work, Spiritual Discipleship. And the psalmist reiterates the point later in the Psalms in Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. God's word points out over and over and over that we will become like who or what we worship. Those things that have great worth, great importance to us in our lives. Not just little images or statues that represent a a deity, but anything that we allow to come in front of or in between our relationship with God. Those are idols. That's sin. I told you I'm going to meddle. As I was preparing this message, I read a a definition of worship that really struck me. Listen to this. Worship is that for which we willingly yield or surrender ourselves in order that it might shape us into its desired outcome. Let me read that again. Listen to that. Let that sink in. Worship is that for which we willingly surrender or yield ourselves in order that it might shape us into its desired outcome. Poignant words. An example of this concept I want to share with you this morning, I want to take a brief look. Let's get the first slide. Anybody tell me what that is? Shout it out. A scarab. Okay. 
So I want to take a brief look at ancient Egypt. Egypt was a, a massive world empire with power and dominion over the entire known world. And they adopted a culture, a, a religion of worship of death. They became completely obsessed with the subject of death. Many of their idols um, concerned the subject of death, and it's interesting to me that if you look at the plagues that God used to bring the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, out of the land of Egypt, there's 10 plagues. And if you take the time to, to research those plagues, every one of those was targeting a specific Egyptian deity. God was declaring his power over the little g-gods of, of Egypt, and his people, Israel, were protected by him. Most, uh, most of their idols had some, something to do with the culture of death. This next slide that's up is also very interesting to me because, again, no, not that one, go back to the next one, that, that one there, is a relief carving that, again, is a scarab. And this kind of carving, this kind of imagery, shows up all over the ancient ruins of Egypt. They, they not only carved it in walls, they fashioned scarabs into jewelry, they formed amulets that they would wear. Why? What is the significance of the scarab? Anybody know? What did the scarab represent to the ancient Egyptians? This is going to shock you, I think. Eternal life. To the ancient Egyptians, the cycle of death and rebirth allowed them to believe that if somebody could be reborn, they could live forever. And the scarab, you can go to the next image, the scarab was connected to their deity, Kephri, who happened to have the head of a scarab, and their belief was that Kephri would roll the sun across the expanse of the sky every day, and when the night came, Kephri would push the sun off the edge of the horizon to its death. And then the next morning, from the opposite horizon, would rebirth the sun and again roll it across the expanse of the sky, the cycle of life and death and rebirth. Can anybody tell me what this ball that this scarab is pushing around is made of? Say it out loud. Dung. Do I need to go on? That is profoundly disturbing to me. A culture that worshipped the dung beetle. How many of you have been to Egypt? I haven't, but has anybody been to Egypt? I have talked to a number of people and scholars who, who have been to Egypt and been to the ancient sites, and all of them said, one of the most profound things that they experienced in Egypt were these petrified mounds along the roadways and the walkways. Would you care to guess what those mounds were? Dung heaps. What an incredibly powerful and poignant picture of what we're talking about today. Quite literally, the land of Egypt became just like the God they worshipped. If that doesn't strike you, I don't know what else to say. Our worship is profoundly important. So how about some good news? 
So if, if we worship things that aren't God and we become like them, I said I believe that the converse is true, right? If we, if we worship Yahweh, if we worship Jesus, then we should be more and more like God, like Jesus, right? That should be what people see in us. Ephesians 2, 10 through 13 says it this way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you nations, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by those who were of the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Philippians 1.6 gives us this promise. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want to share with you a, a little bit of a story from my personal experience. Over the last nine, almost nine weeks, eight and a half weeks, I have conducted an experiment on social media. I did not poll my family. I did not poll my close friends. I did not poll anybody within the church. But I posted within some groups that I'm in in social media, most of them outdoors groups. For the people who knew me, I asked them to describe me in one or two words. And I got a lot of answers that I expected, and, and outside of the context, to, to this context, the answers probably wouldn't make sense. But because there was an outside group, an outdoors group, it, it does. A lot of the answers were custom knives, Olight flashlights, titanium, and you're like, who cares? You're right, who cares? But there were two answers that I got that really got my attention. A friend of mine and his wife, he, he had read the post and he was thinking about how to describe me, what words he would use, and he asked his wife, how would you describe James? And his, one of his sons overheard the question and said, he's intense. Okay, that could be good or bad, and I am so grateful that the, the child went on to say to his parents, I don't mean that in a bad way, but when he likes something, when he's into something, you know it. He's intense. But the second answer to me was, I still get choked up, was profoundly humbling. In fact, I sat in front of my computer bawling for well over an hour when I read it. A lady that I met last October at a camp out used the word indelible. Now, I know what the word indelible means. I, I, I can look at a dictionary. I know what the word means, but... In the context of which she posted that, in that group setting, I asked her to explain what she meant by that. And boy, did I get hammered. She responded to me and she said, when we were at the camp out, I was walking back from the, the bonfire, the, the uh, common bonfire, back to my tent, and I happened to walk by your campground. And I overheard a conversation you were having with somebody he was asking you Bible-related things, things about your faith, things about Scripture. And you were not just one-off answering him, but you took the time to truly answer his questions as you could. 
and then you went to take him through the text to show him why you believed what you believed. And beyond that, the other people who were under your canopy with you would, would chime in. She said, I stood just off of your tent, beside the trailer, out of sight, for over 45 minutes and listened to your conversation until I could take no more and I had to leave. But you had an indelible mark on my spirit, and I have, I have gone about trying to become more open in sharing my faith and having the ability to take people to the text to show why. I'm not saying this for you to praise me, I promise. Indelible would not have been the word I would have used to describe myself. I was blown away. And in, in about a week and a half, Daniel and I are going to go to the spring version of this camp out, and I pray that this lady is there so that I can hug her and say, I want to tell you the effect that you've had on my life by sharing this. Because that's not how I would have described myself. We are becoming like what we worship. Remember the definition that I gave, that I said that I came across? Worship is that for which we willingly yield ourselves, surrender ourselves, in order that it may shape us into that which it desires. As I read Isaiah 64, 8, I'm going to ask for this last slide. And just before that, I'm going to ask you, are there any Michael W. Smith fans in the room? Are you familiar with the song Heart of Worship? If you say no, I'm, you're not a fan. This is going to seem profoundly oversimplified. But in the course of that song, it says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. And while that may seem profoundly oversimplified, it couldn't be any more accurate. In our day-to-day -day life, as we are doing whatever it is that we are doing, as we are interacting with whoever it is that we interact, it's all about you, Jesus. And if that's what guides us, people that you are interacting with won't be able to help but notice the Messiah that you serve. The picture on the screen is clay on a potter's wheel being worked. Isaiah 64, 8 says this, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. As I close this morning, I want to challenge us, if you're, if you're willing to be bold enough to do so, not to this context, but this week, if you're feeling bold, I challenge you to ask people you know outside of these walls, outside of this context, to describe you in a word or two. And listen to what they say. Because that is what we worship. Not them, but what they see at some point in our life as part of what we worship. If the words they use to describe you don't align with your faith, make some changes. And if they do, praise God because you're having a positive impact. But if you're willing, I challenge you to ask somebody, some people outside of the church context to describe you in one or two words. Would you pray with me? 
Father God, it is such an amazing honor and privilege to have the freedom to come into this place and to freely worship you. And we are so grateful for, for your provision and, and for the, now the reduction of restrictions and the ability to, to begin to more interact and, and involve ourselves in the act of worship. It is so good to begin to, to sing out to you. And Father, this morning, my, my prayer for those in this room hearing this word and those who are joining us online and those who will watch later, that the words that I have spoken today are not my words, but your words. And that as the potter's hands work the, the hard pieces out of the clay and, and rupture the air pockets in the clay to, to make it smooth and to form it and to shape it, would you do so in our lives? May we willingly yield and surrender ourselves to you to work out the impurities. No, it's not comfortable. But Father, it is you that we long to be like. And in order to be shaped into your image, to, to be an adequate representation of your Son to this world, it requires the removal of the impurities, the working out of the pockets that would cause fracture and splintering. Father, I pray that you would shape each one of us into the vessel that you have designed us to be. And Jesus, I pray that through us as vessels, your word, your power, your presence, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your healing will be poured out into the culture that we live in, the lives that we come into contact with and that we encounter. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.